0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon
0: passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Just do it. Okay. Hey, everybody. How you doing? This is Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. How's it going out there? I hope you're okay. Thank you for being here with me. Today on the program, my guest is Nada Alec. Author of the critically acclaimed debut story collection, Bad Thoughts.
1: I think the thing that I took from funny writers was just permission, especially like writers who really went there. Like, I just have so much respect for these writers who are fearless and they'll just say the thing. I think a lot of people fail to recognize that it takes a lot of risk and vulnerability to (laughs) try to be funny. and and really put yourself out there and so wanting to attempt that myself i i just am always collecting thoughts in one liners i have this endless you know notes notes app google doc everything and just mining all of that stuff constantly and paying attention and trying jokes on my friend my my poor best friend who has truly been a 15 year long repository for all my jokes
0: Okay, that is Nada Alec, author of the debut story collection, Bad Thoughts. Available now from Vintage. Bad Thoughts is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community going back to 2006. It has its own monthly book club. For more on that, check out TheNervousBreakdown.com. The site is now edited by Joseph Grantham. Bad Thoughts is a remarkable debut collection. So funny and intelligent, exploring contemporary womanhood with all of its taboos, its neurotic excesses, its desires. There's so much here. It's a very good collection. There's not a weak story in the bunch. Every single one of them is excellent to my eye. And I just loved the book and I loved catching Nada Alec at this particular moment in her life and career as she makes this fine debut. So that conversation is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is made possible by Vintage Books, home to bold new voices in literature that push boundaries and expand perspectives. On August 23rd, there's a new memoir coming out on Vintage by Jesse Leon entitled I'm Not Broken. It's an unflinching and inspiring memoir that tells an extraordinary story of resilience and survival, shining a light on a childhood spent devastated by sex trafficking, street life, and substance abuse. Sandra Cisneros says, quote, I'm Not Broken is a book for survivors and those who know someone they hope survives. Bodhisattva's all. Again, the book is called I'm Not Broken by Jesse Leon, coming out from Vintage on August 23rd. So my guest today, again, is Nada Alec, author of the debut story collection, Bad Thoughts, out there now from Vintage. Just a remarkable debut and a wonderful new writer. It's an undeniable book. I don't know how you could read this and not love it. And I really enjoyed talking with Nada. We did a reading together earlier this year, and uh, I got to meet her there. She lives here in, in town in Los Angeles, and I had a great time talking with her at length about her life and her writing and this fine new book. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Nada Alec. And the new collection, one more time, is called Bad Thoughts.
1: I was working an office job. I had moved to LA, and I think 2014, I moved to LA from Toronto. And you know, as an immigrant, had to have a had to have a job. It wasn't really in the cards for me to to like just be an artist. I mean, for a lot of reasons, financial being one of them. So the journey was. It, it just took this really strange route. And it took a long time. I had my agent who I'm still with now. She, she reached out to me early on before I even had a manuscript. I had been doing these zines with my best friend. She's a painter. And I was just kind of writing these little short stories. And we were selling them at like the Skylight Books Annex and and places like that, just kind of for fun. And she, she had come across a zine and, and, and reached out to me, which I know is like not the typical route you have to sort of query agents and stuff. So I was, it was like the first person from the, I guess, industry to recognize what I was doing and this like sort of secret dream that I had. And that really lit a fire under me. And it wasn't until many years later that I, you know, really went for it. I basically like saved up money for a year. I was working as like an editorial director for like a brand and I just needed enough money for like a a few months so that I could just focus on writing and just go for it. Uh, That's like a really naive and insane way to go about it because I really thought, (laughs) I was like, I just need three months and I'm gonna just like bang this out. (laughs) That ended up being three years. Uh, It took me a really long time to unlearn a lot of the you know ways of existing in the world when you have a full-time job and meetings all day. It was like suddenly I'd removed all of these things and it put a lot of pressure on the work and I had to figure out how to exist. It, it, and so I, f- I felt like I was like free falling and I wasn't prepared because I was focused on all the logistics. I wasn't really prepared for the emotional part of it, which was really scary. And, and suddenly I was confronting just an open day and and what to, and, and and how to approach that um so you know writing through that and then just sort of clumsily finding my way into the literary world i had mentioned to you before like i i don't know how i came across your podcast but it was like early days and that's how i sort of learned about a lot of these authors that i ended up really loving their work and then became friends with a lot of them like Leah Dietrich, Chelsea Hodson. And so, yeah, just applying for contests and residencies and workshops and just sort of like really immersing myself, uh, I guess, like giving myself my own MFA experience. And I had a collection ready and I, you know, gave it to my agent and that was kind of COVID era. So we were trying to figure out like the best time to sell it and we ended up sending it out February, 2021. And yeah, in like a couple of days, I, I got like a bunch of offers, which was so crazy because people were telling me, even my own agent was like, collections aren't really selling, you know, like don't get your hopes up. I, I was just hearing a lot of that. And so <laughs> it was, I mean, getting the, the first offer, it was from Catapult I was, <laughs> so elated I was just like sobbing <laughs> like I was like I did it you know yeah yeah, um, yeah. so it was like really yeah it, it, obviously in hindsight I think a lot of people see like all the press and like the book tour and stuff and it just looks like oh it was meant to be but I spent like three years just having no idea if all of this work and energy like just really investing my entire being into this one thing i put all my eggs in one basket if like anything was going to come of it it's so it's it's been deeply meaningful like this whole summer has just been yeah so insane and surreal honestly yeah
0: (laughs) well it's it's fantastic i love stories like that and Look, first of all, before I get any further, I wanted to ask who your agent is. This is the same person that you've been with since the jump, like when you were just putting out zines.
1: Yeah, so it's Mariah Spence at Janklow and Nesbit.
0: And she was out here. Like, is she New York based or is she? She's based in New York,
1: in- yeah. And so through a mutual friend, she was in LA, and she just asked me to go for a drink. And uh, I, she is the coolest and so, so smart and beautiful, and I was so intimidated by her, even when we were. Working together, I'd be like scared to send her an email because I think she's the just like the coolest. Uh, (laughs) I still do. Um, Yeah. And so she's been. I didn't even think about trying to find anyone else because it meant so much to me that she saw something in me and really like planted the seed for me, I think, you know,
0: gave you yeah gave you, like you said, lit a fire and gave you some confidence that maybe you could do it.
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: So the book is called Bad Thoughts. It's a story collection. And why is it called Bad Thoughts?
1: Well, it's twofold. I think the origin story is I, in in sort of that, that first kind of caterpillar goo year of me trying to figure out how to be a writer, uh, <laughs> I was also simultaneously kind of like suffering from, uh, you know, the weird, mysterious, like conditions like my a bunch of stuff with my head and obviously psychosomatic which i ended up finding out thousands of dollars later um but one of that one of those experiences was i had vertigo for two weeks and i don't know if you've ever had vertigo but it basically it feels like you're on a cruise ship but you're just standing and uh i was i was just so i was just in bed and and i had this idea that i was just gonna think of i was just gonna write down every sort of bad thought that I had, kind of like these one-liner jokes, and I just kept going with it. And a friend of mine was putting on a reading, and we were talking about the theme, and I was like, I was like, I think it should be bad thoughts, and I think everyone should just go up there and confess all of their bad thoughts. And so that's really kind of how it started. And then I think just sort of this idea, I, I'm maybe similar to you, like obsessed with buddhism and mindfulness and you know the nature of thoughts and like the mind it felt very funny to me to kind of ascribe you know a value to thoughts which often feel so random and i think for me ever since i was a kid i would have the most heinous (laughs) thoughts Uh, usually when i was like i grew up catholic so i would be like you know in catholic mass just thinking like like, what is the worst thing I could do right now? I could, like, take off all my clothes and, like, run up and down the, you know, you just think about the worst things, and meanwhile, you're presenting something entirely different to the world, which is, like, my obsession with, like, how we perform for each other, this sort of external-facing self versus what's going on in our minds, and so I wanted to explore that, and to me, it felt like a release valve or or, or just, like, a relief to kind of share my most absurd thoughts, um, to sort of, I don't know, diffuse the, the, the shame from it and just be like, everyone has these thoughts and you don't have to identify with them so strongly. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that's really where it comes from. And I was actually just listening to a podcast. I don't remember, but they were saying when you have these thoughts, like, you know, when you're standing like at a rooftop and you look over and you have a thought that you're going to jump or if you're driving and you're like I could crash right now kind of like these really intense dark thoughts that's actually this weird uh, survival skill with your brain to make sure that you don't do that thing and so having the thought is the sign that you have a healthy brain because it's a way of processing it and making you alert to danger and so when I heard that I felt deeply validated.
0: (laughs) I want to ask about you, like you mentioned Buddhism, and there are certain things that I detected that recurred, like recurring themes or like recurring motifs, some of which are pretty funny. and I don't think I'm going to get them all, but I want to read some of them to you because I wrote them down. Uh, we mentioned Buddhism and like what I would call um, like spiritual ennui or new age ennui, uh, which I find relatable. I think it's also very Los Angeles. Maybe it's very everywhere, but it feels like particularly Los Angeles me because this place is such a factory for spiritual experimentation. You know, it's a, it's a, and I think I I love it for that. Like it's a place where you can kind of try on different modes of being. Uh, so that was definitely there in multiple stories. Uh, I also wrote down body hair, <laughs> flatulence, uh, babies and motherhood, or like prospective babies and motherhood, uh, penises. Mm-hmm. Maybe like infant, infantilized men, like men don't fare very well in a lot of the stories, though there are some men, I think that a couple of men that fare okay, but there are a lot of like, kind of like man babies in the book, I feel like too. So, you know, if there's another big one that I'm missing, feel free to interject, but.
1: Yeah. And I think like, it's just like so much of being alive and in a body is, absurd and so funny to me you know Um, especially if you kind of see yourself as an intellectual or you're you kind of exist in your mind the body just feels so extraneous and and just you know cumbersome and mysterious to me and I think especially living in LA this preoccupation with vanity and the body is you know the body as like As accessory or something is really fascinating to me too so and i think it also speaks to our denial of death and our refusal to you know interact with (laughs) death and decay or acknowledge it there's a bit of escapism in certain forms of buddhism i think where you're too identified with the spiritual aspect of it the spirit you know and i think I'm really into Ramdas, he's so he he always talks about, like, non-duality or sort of living in these parallel realities. In one, you are fully a human, and you're in the human experience, and you're taking the human curriculum, and your heart is breaking for all the suffering, and you will die. There is death and decay. But then on the other side, you know, you can see that it's all perfect, which feels, you know, like sacrilegious to say or something but the idea is that you are both incarnate and god this all sounds like really philosophical and heady for what my like jokey book is but it's the sort (laughs) of stuff that i uh love to contemplate and and feel like i'll spend the rest of my life rubbing up against these ideas because i am stuck in this paradox and we all are you know
0: yeah a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I, it's, you know, it's interesting because I was watching you on the page sort of engage with this stuff. A lot of times like at an angle and a lot of times in a way that was poking fun at it
1: yeah i think it's an exercise in not taking myself too seriously you know i'm really drawn to comedy i grew up with stand-up and old snl and all of that stuff and i think i'm i love you know there's a lot of like contemporary fiction writers that i think are super funny and like doing it well but you know to to the sort of spiritual materialism it is so often absurd and hilarious and can also at times be predatory and exploitative and you see that a lot in LA people preying on really desperate people and i i too have have been that person and you know i think because i'm so interested in like esoteric ideas i have to step outside of it and laugh at it and take a break and you know because i don't want to get swept up in any one way of thinking i think you know i've i've been to all of the healers and, the, and, like, I've, you know, tarot readers, and I I even subscribe to this woman on Patreon who identifies as an alien with, who had a near-death experience and met uh, this, like, uh, this governing celestial body uh, who sort of was like, you've got a job to do. She's also a comedian. Anyway, I really like some of her ideas, and I know that that sounds... <laughs> so cookie, but um i like staying open to all of it while not being attached to any one thing you know i can appreciate that my parents are still very much catholic and and that's their connection point to the divine at least that you know I, I don't necessarily agree with all of it but they have ritual and they have community around it and i think that is important and so we're all trying to get at that sort of mystery you know and and have language around it um especially now that you know i think we live in such a uh godless neoliberal uh modern society it's like so you kind of have to figure it out for yourself and and pick and choose like you know the things that work for you so
0: i i've heard more than one person in recent conversations, maybe on this show, but also just in my day-to-day life, talking about how, like, a sincere, non-ironic, or, like, cynical engagement with spiritual tradition or big spiritual questions is, like, coming back into vogue.
1: Yeah, but it's also more accessible, I think, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't all I really had was Oprah. I was obsessed with Oprah. And she would always have, you know, spiritual teachers on, and I would, you know, secretly read Deepak Chopra books when I wasn't allowed to. But it's like now people are talking about all of this stuff on TikTok. It just feels like that the, you know, astrology is like so commonplace, like these things are just more widespread and and available, you know? As the alien woman that I follow on Patreon says, you know, we're all expanding into 5D consciousness. So <laughs> that would make sense. We're um,
0: Wait, what is 5D consciousness?
1: 5D consciousness. Oh 5D.
0: oh, 5D, like five dimensional.
1: She's in 8D. So this is making me sound insane. Um, I just, <laughs> just for the record, she's she's also a comedian. <laughs> but, you know, there is something to that where it's like, I can't tell if it's a generational thing or something. But I do feel like even my consciousness is expanding. Maybe that's from doing mushrooms or reading certain books or just getting older. I think age kind of softens you too. your ego kind of naturally dissipates a little bit as you are constantly humbled by life. And, you know, you're on the hedonic treadmill for so long and you go, oh, right, Um, satisfying, you know, pleasure and kind of living in that lower mind is not really doing it for me. So maybe there is like something else. But I do think that we can get too preoccupied as highly sensitive people. What really helps me is talking to my parents who have been through a lot more suffering than me and have such a high pain tolerance. And I think if there's, if I were to ever impart (laughs) advice to anyone, which I don't like doing, I would say cultivate a high pain tolerance because that'll get you through a lot. Just sort of, you know, I have suffered, okay, you know, develop sort of a callous towards life, a grit, a resilience, like they're so inspiring to me and, you know, they don't even intend to, to be that way, but they just, they work so hard. Um,
0: Wait, what? What kind of? What's their pain tolerance born of? They they're immigrant. They immigrated from uh,
1: Croatia. Croatia. Yeah. So my parents they actually moved back this year to Croatia. I grew up in like a Croatian diaspora outside of Toronto in the suburbs. Just everyone I knew was Croatian. They really kind of immersed me, and I was in Croatian dance and choir and Croatian school. It was it was like, I felt very indoctrinated in like this insular kind of cult of being Croatian, which I only now appreciate now, you know, on my own terms. Now I can appreciate the culture, but when, you know, you're sort of coexisting, you're, you're existing in these two worlds of, you know, going to school and, you know, watching MTV and wanting to be like everybody else at school. And then, you know, have having to wear these, crazy costumes in banquet halls uh you know doing these little dances at night um <laughs> but yeah my parents you know we didn't have a lot of money growing up they both worked they both had the same job for until they retired for like 34 years my dad worked at the ford factory and my mom worked at the hospital and my dad's also contractor and so on the side was flipping houses and is still doing that so talented taught himself everything it's incredible i mean like he's basically an orphan both of his parents died when he was very young and he came to canada by himself it's just and for them to just they're just filled with so much like light and joy and gratitude and uh they work they still work really hard and so it's cool you know getting to talk to them in the midst of all of this too it's it's a very humbling thing because they don't really have the context for the literary world or like even honestly like the new york times like having to explain to them what's a big deal <laughs> is is just like really good for me uh
0: i feel ashamed of myself just hearing about them like this is uh, a. <laughs> yeah. My, my self-esteem is just plummeting.
1: Me too. I wish <laughs> I got some of that. I'm yeah. I'm such a whiny little baby. Like I like I. My day could get ruined by like a weird email. Right. Uh, so yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I think that they had to go through a lot. You know, my family had to go through a lot. Just coming from a very like war torn region. I think it's sort of in our blood and then it's like i I come here i live in la I, i have like all of these kind of honestly cush like advertising and branding jobs or freelance or writing a book and my problems are just you can't really compare but i i still i have the same i don't know like residual ancestral kind of anxieties in me of like survival right but the but the environment has changed so That's also been something that, you know, I'm grappling with of feeling like, not feeling like shit all the time about having anxiety about things that are very stupid, you
0: know? (laughs) Right. And I think there's even a line in the book. Maybe it's one of those like Twitter interstitials. There are these interstitials. I think they're tweets. They're like pithy little thoughts that like sort of exist in between stories that I think kind of set up each story thematically, but they, they read as like tweets or jokes but also with some edge to them and some depth. And one of them was like just how miserable it is that like in order for a person to be compassionate and like have some depth to them and um, develop resilience, they have to like suffer terribly. Am I, am I misremembering this?
1: No, that is correct. Yeah. To be a better, hotter, smarter version of yourself. uh, It's a huge bummer that you, that you have to suffer you know but i don't know i always have this tendency to just go way too deep and philosophize everything but it's this idea of like you know what even is life with the absence of suffering i think that you know you hear about all of these like i don't know if it was like a buddhist thing of like god wanted to fragment itself to experience the whole spectrum of all there is to experience and so the first however many years of just pure pleasure gets boring after a while and if you think about humanity as this kind of drama unfolding it's like all right let's make let's make this little high stakes and uh how the actors forget that they are acting you know what does that what does that look like when i look at a bug in my house i go this bug doesn't know that it's in Nada's house in LA and, you know, and it's so we're these bugs that we can't fathom and we don't have the equipment with we, we don't have the software. And so I think we we can kind of uh, feel around for it and, you know, psychedelics help, uh, you know, some of these sort of, I'm sure like witnessing the birth of your children, these the sort of more defined Uh, spiritual moments of our lives kind of give us clues it feels like there is a texture to this that isn't there is something else but we can't really articulate it so it's why we it's why we create art it's why you know it's why we exist at all it's why we love it's why we connect you know I think we're all just sort of trying to figure figure it out but also make peace with the fact that we might never know in this um, iteration of ourselves.
0: What about a guy? Okay, so but what about a guy like Ram Das, or in particular his guru Neem Karoli Baba, who, when you read stories about this guy, you're just like, what? I mean, he was like clairvoyant. He could just like look at you and be like, oh. So you're struggling with your novel, aren't you? You know, <laughs> and people just like spontaneously weep the minute he like looks at them. I mean, like the the stories are incredible, like almost unbelievable to me. But
1: absolutely, and he's just gobbling acid, and absolutely nothing's happening to Right? You know? <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> wait, 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 wait. We got to stop so that people. Oh right. Because <laughs> this is a this is a famous Ramdas story where Richard Alpert slash Ramdas is sitting there with him, Crowley Baba, and what did he say? He's like. You have the medicine, you're taking medicine. He referred to it as medicine. And so yeah. Ramdas gives him like a vial of liquid acid that had like a ton of hits in it. Like, you know, it was like if you, like, like 50 people could have gotten super high off of this vial. And Neem Kuroli Baba just like downs the whole thing and there's no impact at all.
1: Right. Because he's already there.
0: Yeah. Right. I guess. I mean, but I don't even know how that's a lot of acid.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that these stories I can sometimes be skeptical. The the, the only reason why I choose to believe it is because Ramdas has so consistently, at least for me, I, I I don't know, I have this like pretty good like bullshit detector for these types of spiritual teachers and I've listened to his lectures for over a decade. And he's never said anything that's made me stop and question and be like, oh, you know, cult leader vibes or, or something. It's like, it, to me at least, it's it's the closest that I've gotten to any sort of truth. And so I, I trust him and his accounts of this, of his guru, you know, and that's sort of all I can go off of. But I have seen and been to many healers just out of – mostly out of like curiosity, but I'm always the one in the back of the room kind of standing with my arms crossed to be like, all right, prove it, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, who, wait, like who though? Like who have you been to see?
1: I've been to psychics, body healers, people who speak to the dead. I've been, you know, to to retreats, that sort of thing. Uh, Like
0: silent meditation retreats?
1: No, I haven't done silent meditation. I did a tech-free retreat where you weren't allowed to say your real name or what you did um it was in the forest like outside of san francisco and there was a lot of like uh sweat lodges and fear burning bonfires and weird stuff like that <laughs> again i don't know why i do because i'm not i don't drink the kool-aid of it i think i'm just so fascinated with the types of people who do or yeah i don't know and it's it's funny because I, I do believe that there are people out there who have, I don't know, uh, these special supernatural abilities, right? But then I'll hear something or my parents will, you know, go to like a like a Catholic whatever, an exorcist or, or, or a healer or something, or, or there's a guy who does uh, – he has stigmata. And immediately I go, he's a fraud. That cannot be. I was actually the other day just looking up. There's this guy – in Croatia named Braco, like brother, little brother. Uh, he apparently just he'll through his gaze, he can heal people. And so that's his thing. He just will stand up in front of these crowds and just stare. He won't say anything. And his origin story is so fascinating to me. He had this sort of mentor who had this ability, Ivica. And I don't know if they were sort of secret lovers or or friends or whatever, but they this is on his Wikipedia. They um, went to uh, South Africa and they were on the beach. And the wiki is so funny because it specifies Ivica took off all of his gold jewelry before getting swept up by a rogue wave and he died. And so Barazzo comes back and he's like, Ivica's dead. Now I have disability and so he's for many years now has been the one and i'm like sounds like you maybe killed ibiza i don't know
0: (laughs) (laughs) how do you spell brazo so people Um, can look up this up
1: b-r-a-c-o he's got the most incredible youtube channel it's so it's it's my favorite thing it's i just sent it to someone the other day but there's like this weird propaganda video from This very famous Croatian singer who did like a whole song about Braco on his eyes. And he does have kind eyes, I will say. And I don't know if it's sort of, you know, just this, the the collective experience of, you know, the adrenaline or, you know, when you hear Pentecostal healers kind of doing these sort of miraculous healings type things thing you know the, the 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 mind is really powerful maybe it's the placebo effect but people are seem to be getting a lot out of this man just staring at them and who am i to say that he maybe murdered someone <laughs> <I don't
0: know. laughs> well and here's a question for you since you've had a lot of exposure to healers and experiences like this like among the ones that you've been in the presence of have any of them seemed super authentic to you to a degree that exceeded the norm you know where you're like whoa maybe there's something to this
1: Yes, there, there was one, it wasn't entirely on point, but it was when I was dealing with the, this weird, I I was hearing my heartbeat in my ears for like a year and I didn't know what was wrong with me. Spoiler, nothing was wrong with me. Uh, I was just (laughs) uh, stressed. And I went to this body healer. So this woman who a, a lot of friends of mine had gone to, and she is able to kind of channel the the dead and um she uses tuning forks and you basically lie down on this table and she kind of does a lot of things around you that's sort of reiki ish and then she'll be she'll she'll be writing down notes because she's picking up messages from the I don't know ghosts or deceased people who are just floating around you anyway, so she did this for like an hour and a half and she told me that my so my dad's mom had passed away when my dad was very young, and that she was coming through, and she was like she she had suffered a loss, which she did she lost a child before my dad and the weird part about her talk- because I mean I guess you could pull out grandparents that's that's a fairly easy one. My sister, who lives in Toronto also randomly the same week went to a body healer in Toronto, which we didn't even talk to each other about this. It was new for me. And, and she was like, you know, the, she was telling me about it. She was like the weirdest thing this body healer. She said that our dad's mother came through and I was like kind of the same thing that she had lost a child and stuff. And I was like, that is weird. Like, I don't know so stuff like that where, yeah, I've, I've had people kind of tell me things like, that do come true and and I and I don't have an explanation for it, you know. Maybe yeah. I'm searching for that. Maybe I want to hear that, but
0: Well, that's that's beyond like coincidence. That's like a that's a very specific coincidence.
1: Yeah. She also ended it by saying, uh, I can never see you again." <laughs> that was another weird part of the story where Why? She's like my guides told me that i she's like this has never happened in my whole which of course i thought i was like i was like okay i'm riddled with demons what's wrong with me like i I was so offended i was like okay um she and then she afterwards she was she texted me she was like i consulted my teacher i don't know like i'm just not i'm just not able to see you again and so i never really got an answer for that but yeah i don't know maybe i'm due for an exorcism Were we talking uh, about a book? I forget.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, but it is, this stuff is embedded in the book. I know it's like, you know, it's not all that is embedded in it, but it is definitely in there. And I'm going to make a comparison to Cindy Sherman, uh, who, you know, I think most people know, visual artist who essentially makes her own body, her canvas, and she becomes characters. So she'll use makeup, and lighting and all this stuff to sort of uh, create characters. And then she photographs herself. That was kind of what I, f- that was the effect that I got from your book, where I was like, oh, here's Nada. And she's writing these stories about women in their 20s and 30s, and usually in the first person. And it felt to me like you were trying on costumes. Does that resonate at all with how you intended it or how you experienced it creatively?
1: Yes, I. how I approached it was there would be some sort of core thing that I was preoccupied with uh, or, or sort of, yeah, feeling. And for a lot of them, these are very exaggerated characters. Some of them are terrible and it was fun to embody them so i would take something like you know my god your face she has a mysterious rash that no one can see obviously that i wrote during that time where something really felt like it was wrong with me for a year and no one was validating that for me it was a really like confusing and scary time and so i remember writing down like what if my ponytail is too tight What if it's this brand of toothpaste? You know, you kind of like are searching for the one answer for the thing that'll be, you know, the reason why something is wrong with you, right? So I'll take that and I'll stretch it out or waiting for an email that you think is going to change your life. Can I create this character who is just going to alienate everyone around her and just obliterate her life in service to this fantasy of this better life that's on its way, you know? In doing that, I can create this atmosphere of humor and absurdity where people, it has this disarming effect where people can relate to that or they can see maybe a bit of themselves in kind of like that that core desire or longing, you know?
0: I felt like each paragraph in the book was like spring-loaded. Like there was a precision to the prose from the perspective of humor that I really admired. It just felt like really, uh, sculpted, is that the word, you know, I'm curious to know about the actual like nuts and bolts of the writing process for you. You know, I've just, I want to know more about like your approach to it because it has like kind of a, like, it's funny in a way that feels rare to me, you know, and knowing in a way that feels rare, like there's a real great, a sense of like really skilled crafts, a uh, really skilled craftswoman at work, especially for a debut.
1: Wow. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe because I didn't come f- from an MFA route, I I really came up in music and all of my friends and my husband are mostly musicians, and so Wait,
0: I, are, you, are you are you musical? No. Oh. I wish. Okay.
1: I <laughs> I mean, don't we all wish that is the coolest art form. They're still magicians to me. Like, it, it still is the most powerful experience with art is music, obviously. The rest of us are just, like, coming up, inventing all these complicated ways to get to a truth that they can access directly, I think. Right. Yeah. And so, but I, I think I took a lot of that musicality and, and even the performance element of of writing uh, this and doing a lot of readings So just really kind of paying attention to the rhythm and the pacing and making sure that, I don't know, maybe if I were to psychoanalyze myself, it would be like growing up with especially my dad, just like the language barrier and feeling like I only had five seconds to really succinctly explain or communicate something to him. And then just like taking that with me wherever I went of like, okay I I only have this, you know slice of time. I have to get it perfect. I have to be compelling. And, and, you know, maybe that kind of bled into it as well. But I have this sense that I don't, even though I'm on a podcast right now, kind of meandering, like I I don't want to waste people's time. And I want to be generous with whatever it is that I'm going to say. So that's why the short story form appeals to me, the brevity of it. I wanted to make sure every line landed with people because It feels like such a privilege to have anyone's attention. I didn't want to waste that. And I always appreciate when someone doesn't waste that with me.
0: In terms of literary people who are kind of uh, beacons for you in that sense, like who you learned from in terms of how to be funny on the page while also like cutting deep, like who are writers for you that kind of showed you the way?
1: I think for short story writers, I really started with like Lori Moore and Lucia Berlin and even this writer amy barradale wrote this story collection that i think is so brilliant uh samantha hunt but then in terms of humor it would be like melissa broder definitely Alyssa nutting patricia lockwood so funny smart you know contemporary female writers that are really funny on the page even like some i know you've had a lot of like croatian writers on but like Dasha Dranditch, who is not funny but is very severe and brutal and just says it like it is and she passed away, but she would write a lot about well, a lot of about the war and, and that kind of thing. I think the thing that I took from funny writers was just permission. Especially like writers who really went there, like Alyssa Nutting in Tampa. I can't believe like it just I just have so much respect for these writers who are fearless and they'll just say the thing. And I think it's not just literary world, but yeah, standup comedians, like people who are willing, cause I think, I don't know, I, I think a lot of people fail to recognize that it takes a lot of risk and vulnerability to <laughs> try to be funny and, and really put yourself out there. And so I, I think just like wanting to attempt that myself I, I just am always collecting thoughts in one liners. I have this endless, you know, notes, notes app, uh, Google doc, everything, and just mining all of that stuff constantly and paying attention and trying on or trying jokes on my friend, my, my poor best friend who has truly been a 15 year long repository for all my jokes. Let's give, let's uh, give
0: this person a shout out on the podcast.
1: Oh, she I dedicated my book to her, Andrea Nakla. She's like an incredible painter. It sort of is like a Sheila and Margot kind of relationship. I was say, yeah. But um yeah, I do like credit her as my muse, and she is infinitely cooler than I will ever be. Like I'm just kind of like the weird neurotic girl, and she's just I still think she's the coolest and live to impress her. She's just got this like calm I don't know her presence is just everybody wants to be friend. like she is so cool but she's also my best friend and, and 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 like allows me to kind of like I don't think I would even say it like this but like try material on her constantly where I'm just trying to make her laugh all day every day we talk every day she lives in Topanga so it's you know we don't get to see each other as much but we're texting and calling each other every day
0: I, okay I was, so say, means, I was gonna like, say because i was gonna say you're trying material on her and as a writer is it mostly text or is it i guess it's both
1: yes our our text message thread must it needs to self-destruct because it's the most insane <laughs> no one can see it i will die a thousand deaths i think if anyone saw it because it is just so embarrassing and uh you know to have a relationship for that long with somebody and grow with them and to feel so safe with another person that you can say literally anything that's, you know, on your mind, um, to me is like, I just feel so grateful for, for her. And, you know, the, the, the first story, my new life, I kind of wanted to it was sort of an ode to our friendship but more of like a funny kind of toxic codependent friendship where it's like you have that friend where you know you do something or say something terrible and then they quickly tell you oh it's fine I've done worse or I've done the same and then you're absolved right of your of your guilt you just kind of want to like tell someone and to have that person I don't even necessarily think that that's a good or healthy thing I think that Good friendships, you know, people will call you out, but we all kind of want that person to just be like, oh, that's not that bad. <laughs> don't worry about it, you know? I don't know if you have somebody like that in your life. I mean, but maybe, she's maybe not, maybe her not to
0: that degree. I mean, guys don't talk as much, but I do. I, I have friends that I talk to regularly and that I feel that sense of openness with. And I, yeah, it's like it's a relief to have those friends and to have those conversations and to feel a sense of safety and to be able to be kind of a mess.
1: Or also just, you know, mutually incriminating collateral <laughs> via text message, embarrassing photos that you could everybody, share. Should everybody has it?
0: that. I think everybody has <laughs> at least one text thread that they would die if anybody saw. And thank God they have it. I forgive everybody for that text thread.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. I think you just need one person to feel safe around. And to me, that translates really well to, to forgiving myself with my writing too, so I, I I'm allowed to be bad. I'm allowed to suck. I'm allowed to not be funny in this draft. You know, there's like, as long as I have people around me who, um, don't wouldn't judge me. It it does it lends itself well to the to the writing process, which can otherwise be so punishing. I don't know if you've done oh, yeah. that.
0: And I want to ask you because, like, you know, your book, like I keep saying, is funny, and you talked about how, you know, among funny writers, there's just this like willingness to go there, like Alyssa Nutting in Tampa. But it's one thing to go there. It's another thing to like go there artfully. (laughs) It's, you know, it's not, it's not enough to just go there. You also have to pay attention to how you go there. And what I marvel at when I read writers that are gifted comedically is like this unerring, instinct they seem to have for the audience and it like the word that comes to mind is control you know you have to have control of the line because if you go there but you're just sort of sloppy about it or your instincts are poor people are going to roll their eyes or or worse so my question for you is how how quickly do you get there (laughs) what i find is like the funny line usually comes fast for me, like on the off chance that I have one, I don't think I'm a super funny person, but I think I can sometimes get it right. But if I'm struggling for the joke and like really crafting it and honing the line, it almost always sucks or it just fails to land. Is that same for you or different?
1: Yeah. The more humorous muse, you really have to earn that one because I don't know. I think that's what makes the writing process so difficult for me is that I I need to be in a playful light state in order to access that voice freely. I can't I can't like will it out of me if I'm sort of feeling off or I'm anxious or, you know, and so a lot of it really is setting up an environment that is conducive to me being light and playful and funny.
0: What does that mean, setting up an environment?
1: Honestly, I mean, I hate the word self-care, but really just setting myself up for success. So A, I had to learn what what did my routine even look like? I didn't have one, so I, you know, through trial and error was like, okay, between like 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. is kind of my only window to to even write at all so what do i do to protect that you know how do i like stay consistent i really had to honestly to the exclusion of a lot of like i neglected a lot of other areas of my life to to be able to to write this and it was kind of like the only way even like how you know intense it it is like to make the decision to quit your job to just do this right and so I think it was, yeah, making sure that I made time for my friends too, that I had kind of like that I could blow off some steam and be surrounded by other artists. You know, I started a, a writing group for a while where a bunch of women would meet in my house once a month and we, would, we wouldn't we would even talk about craft. We would just talk about the emotional aspect of it. So I was just always trying to like tend to that kind of sacred part of me that I guess for lack of a better word inner child right because I think me at my core is really silly and goofy and playful and so um really kind of trying to protect that and 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 take care of that and I I'm still working at that I'm not you know perfect at it I I feel like even even though this whole process was like three years that still feels like a really long time for me because I didn't really work on a ton of other stuff I, I was doing some freelance but like I kind of was just doing this. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I really wanted to get it right. I I really wanted to earn those laughs. I really wanted to hone it.
0: How long does it take you to write a story, typically, like ballpark?
1: Yeah, I would say a, a, couple, a few months, a couple months. So I'll, it's not like I'll just work on one like I'll bounce around, but I would say, if I had to say it would be like three months for that kind of first initial dump of like a first draft, but then I'll be tweaking it forever, you know? And it's a lot of like cutting the fat. Is there a way that I can phrase this where it's like a little bit quicker and funnier? Even editing with my editor, to, you reach the end. You're like, I just kept thinking, could it be funnier? You know, but then you don't want to edit it to death because, you do lose kind of like that that initial, whatever that raw material was that that sort of libidinal energy that kind of birthed, the story. You don't want to lose that. And I, a good barometer was my best friend, who she, she really kind of, would always fall in love with the first drafts of my stories and um, berate me. Anytime I edited too much, she was like, "Your first draft was better. It was the best, you know." Oh. Yeah, but the inner contrarian in me always pushes back, and it's like, "You're wrong, actually." <laughs>
0: right. I'm right. I know <laughs> it better. This new than version
1: you. of me so much funnier than <laughs> way back then, you know. Uh.
0: So okay, but so just to make sure that I try to nail this down as best as it can be nailed down. Like when you're getting to a, let's just say a paragraph, and you're trying to get that that thing perfect and the joke, right? Essentially. How many drafts? Like, is the first draft not funny, and then like eventually you, you hone it and hone it and hone it and you get there? Or is it that like you might have an off day of writing and just kind of write a crap paragraph, but then the next day you're feeling it and the joke comes fast. Like which one is truer, the honing or like the, it was just a bad day and on a better day, it'll happen more quickly.
1: Yeah, I would say not a n- not a fan of honing. Wish that I were more of a maximalist writer, but I am more of the Fran Lebowitz. Like, write one sentence, pace around my living room, think about it. Because, you know, th- I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest this for anyone, but I am I I am more of a romantic when it comes to writing. So I want to return to a more or less beautiful draft, like a, I, I can't sit with like a pile of, sh- of shit that's like, it's not inspiring to me. So I am constantly editing as I go. Like I start from the beginning, it takes so long to do it that way. And I don't recommend it. This is not.
0: <laughs> I think this is how I do it too. Do you like start when you start a day of work, you start from the beginning and just reread everything every time and then
1: 100% for so long. It's, I didn't even know it was like a full collection. I just had these disparate, you know, drafts that I was hoping was going to be a cohesive, you know, unit, but I there was so much I didn't know going into it. I was I was hoping that I would finish it and that it would be this thing, but it was a miracle anytime I, I finished a story. So, <laughs>
0: And now here you are with a beautiful collection of stories.
1: Yeah. Look at me now.
0: That's exciting. <laughs> and, and and like, and they're kind of undeniable. I'm not surprised that there was a, an immediate response from publishers, even though stories are, you know, story collections are quote unquote, impossible to sell. Um, this work has like some an undeniable quality. It's just great. And in total, totally engaging from line one and consistently good. Like each, you know, there's not a, there's not a stinker in the bunch, uh, so kudos to you for all the hard work. I always ask people before I let them go if they're working on anything new. Like, do you have another story collection going? Are you working on a novel? Or
1: yeah, I I did a two book deal with Knopf, so I have a novel that is due very soon. Uh, yeah, it's it's due next year. I need to get back to it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> uh, you know, it's. The book promo took—it was a full-time job, honestly, for the last few months. I have never worked harder. Like, obviously, writing is its own beast, but promoting it is just a whole other story. And so now I'm starting to slow down. Wait, what?
0: What have you done? Like, what? What's the hard work, like, of the promoting? Like, so people listening get a sense of it.
1: Oh my God, to go from being truly a civilian with a manuscript to. A published author with press you know people don't see the behind the scenes of that I I chased down most of the press I I I, I was like my own this is where my like corporate world experience actually really helped me because I kind of had a sense of that obviously I I had a publicist at my at my publisher and they were great and um but I you know everything from I made short films that were book trailers with a director friend of mine. And that's a huge production. And there was a lot that went into that that took months. And then making sure that I had an exclusive with a magazine to premiere that. I, you know, designed t-shirts. I I pitched, I, I had a whole galley, you know, spreadsheet of everyone I'd ever met. You know, like I really went for it because I I wanted to figure out how, how I was going to cut through the noise of you know millions of books coming out why why should anybody care about mine you know and so i i just i have that diy spirit i just applied that to put putting this book out into the world and you know it's really hard to convince people but once they had the book in their hands and started reading it i noticed like such a shift in energy where people were really excited about it it was just the process of getting it to certain editors and getting it reviewed and and doing interviews and stuff that that really took a long time. But, you know, the hope is that you – it's an investment, right, in your future career as a writer. I, I have a novel coming out, and so hopefully the next time it won't be as difficult to convince people because they now know who I am. But, you know, the funny thing about a book tour, it, especially with your first book, is like, well, no one's read the book. So I, had, I planned out this whole book tour for myself. I did, like, nine events. I went to New York – you know, and the whole time I'm thinking, like, who who's coming to this? Because, no, you know, only now am I getting messages from readers who have read the book, who bought it when it came out. But it really took a lot out me out of me this summer. It was so incredible and it, it did better, you know, than I could have ever imagined. But I put so much work into it. And I, I do want people to know that because I think they see the sort of the end result. It looks like, you know. Oh that just sort of happened to her. It didn't. <laughs> I really worked hard on it and it was really intentional, so.
0: And it paid dividends, like all that stuff like the the trailers and everything, like you feel like you got like a like a result from it.
1: I think so. And and for me it's like it, you have to define what success is for you. I have met so many cool people through this, like really new like new friends that are fans of my work but I actually I want to hang out with them. I, you know, I, I got to connect with other creative people in L.A., whether it's like filmmakers, photographers, writers, whatever, using almost like using your book as an excuse to create something together or be together and using it as like this this entry point into a world of artists that I kind of was always on the periphery of and wanted to figure out how to access. And so just in terms of that, the people that I've met the last couple of months, even you, even me (laughs) even you I mean I'm a huge fan of yours and this podcast and I don't believe me for whatever reason but like hugely inspirational to me and that's kind of like whatever happens to the book beyond you know some of the connections that I've made is just extra at this point because I I really do I know this sounds like so sappy and earnest but like I really do Um, I'm so grateful for the people that I've met because I created this thing you know
0: Sure. Yeah. What about this novel? Can you tell us anything?
1: It is about intergenerational trauma, my family. It's about performance artists. Think like Marina Abramovich, right? It's about LA, but it's funny. So it's like, (laughs) it's still going to be in my voice. Uh, It's still going to be lighthearted, but kind of tackling a lot of the topics that we talked about here, but like, you know therapy culture and blaming your parents for things and then kind of what happens when you kind of grow up and 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 think like think about your childhood and and so it's about someone who's sort of exacting her revenge on on her parents in a very misguided way yeah and it involves like a, a regional children's uh croatian dance troupe you know just regular stuff So it's been like really fun to, to kind of, I'd never written a novel before. So just, yeah, diving into that, that world, kind of like Daddy's Girl is sort of like a precursor. I wanted to end on that because that'll, that'll be a good introduction to the novel.
0: Okay. Daddy's Girl being the final story in your collection. Yes. And like a real sweethearted story. I love that story. (laughs) uh well i have really enjoyed talking with you and loved your book we're featuring it in the book club this month and thank you i'm excited about it and i encourage you to enjoy the moment i think you have been and to get to work on this novel because your your deadline is coming
1: <laughs> thanks for uh, reminding me Barbara. yeah yeah i'm sorry appreciate it. I, <laughs> we,
0: need, we need the next book Nada, come on uh, but no best of luck congratulations and uh, we'll just look forward to the, to the next one when it comes out.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been so fun.
0: Okay, there we go. That is Nada Alec, author of the debut story collection, Bad Thoughts, available now from Vintage. It is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And it is remarkable. You can find Nada Alec on the internet at nadaalec.com. She's on Twitter at Nada Alec. She's on Instagram, track her down and be sure to get your hands on this collection. It's called Bad Thoughts out there from vintage. Go get it. The Other People podcast is made available free of charge, almost 800 episodes and counting. It's a listener supported show. So if you are listening to this right now and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I really like that. I really enjoyed that. I really got something from that. Please know that you can support this show for as little as $1 a month. That's it. Just throw a dollar in the hat every month. $1 in the hat. Or more if you have it. $3, $5, $10. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, uh, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. All sorts of stuff to sweeten the pot over at Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. Patreon.com slash other P-P-L pod support this show. It's listener supported. If you would like to get the other people app, you can do that. It's free. It's a great way to listen, get it wherever you get your apps. If you would like to read my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. You can do that. Uh I would, I would love it if you would do that. It's paperback, it's ebook, it's uh, audiobook, it's all of those things, whichever you prefer. Again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. I am the narrator, by the way, of the audiobook if that makes a difference. And the Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel. So if you're a YouTube person, go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. If you would like to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen, at Apple Podcasts or wherever, I would appreciate that. It helps other listeners find the show when you do that. It helps the algorithm do things to help people find the show. So rate and review the show. It just takes a minute or two. Otherwise, you can find the show on the internet at otherppl.com on Twitter at otherppl or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. So stay tuned in. I also do an email newsletter once a week. If you want to sign up for that, it's free. You can sign up at my personal website, bradlisty.com or at the show's website, otherppl.com. All right. Coming up next week, I believe my guest will be Melissa Chadburn, who I have been meaning to have on. She has a great new debut novel out called A Tiny Upward Shove, and I'm going to talk to her about that soon. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and I will be back shortly.